And I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein myself and Kyle introduce each other to films, and in this way, we catch up on our cinema. Uh, So it is the month of November, uh, which means it is no theme November, uh, which basically means from week to week, we've just been picking whatever the fuck kind of movie we feel like, uh, with very little room for consistency, um, which results in me selecting the final film for this month, um, and that would be Stephen Norrington's Death Machine from 1994. Um, this was a odd pick. It, it was kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing. It's uh, it's kind of been on my uh, my watch list since I was a teenager, to be honest. Um, there was a website uh, that I used to frequent quite often um, called badmovies.org. Uh, it ex- still exists to this day. I don't know how often it's updated, but I check back there every once in a while. But um, when I was in high school, that was like one of my favorite websites. I used to go there and peruse all the, quote, bad movie reviews. And uh, this one had an article there. And um, it needs to be said. Um, I, I don't know, maybe you disagree with me, Kyle, but I feel like... Um, at least in our lifetime, like so, like from the 1980s onward, um, robot monsters are fairly uncommon uh, in monster movies these days. Yeah, and uh, I think this movie should actually be a Criterion release because it is—it's a very unique. It's—it's it's a very—it's uh, unique in what it's doing. Uh, because you're right, there are not a lot of uh, of uh, machine monster movies. Um, I feel like that's kind of a I think it has to do with Godzilla. I feel like that's the only, the only real property that's messed with, like, what, Micha Godzilla? Mecha. God damn it! <laughs> I'm going to get it one of these days. Uh, no, because as soon as this started, uh, I'm like, RoboCop? I started getting RoboCop feels uh, early on, and I got RoboCop feels later on. Um, this movie's just kind of strange in that it's kind of pull- it's pulling stuff from other movies, uh, but it has nothing to do with those other movies. Do you get my? You get what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's very I, strange. I, I agree with you 100. percent And um, yeah, I, I can't really think of that many other robot monster movies off the top of my head. A uh, virus is one that you and I were talking about before we recorded. Yeah. Um, that involves mechanical monsters and whatnot. Of course, RoboCop has like Ed 209 and whatnot. Um, but really, like as compared to like biological like monster threats, robots are fairly uncommon and i want to say a lot of it has to do with the the way the special effects have to be done yeah like actually building a like animatronic prop um making that look good is probably a lot more difficult than having like a rubbery thing that you can coat in a layer of slime that catches the light in a you know in a fascinating way and you can cut around it whereas like a a robot it's like "Mm, how do we make that look interesting and like it can actually move and do things <laughs> it's like that's asking quite a bit of the people putting it together but um yeah this movie is um not not that great <laughs> um, i'll say that straight up um but parts of it are delightful just because like you said it, it's like it's just a hodgepodge of references yeah and they're all they're all movies that you and i love and no, so we we get the reference. We're in on the joke, but the whole time, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the whole time. It's like I I see I what get you're it. doing. <laughs> I know what you're trying to do. <laughs> I was like, there's not. I've never seen anything like this where the references are on the nose, but still niche. Like, especially for like 1994. Like this was kind of. It, it just it's a very strange film. Well, it's simultaneously ahead of its time and like of its time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that because um, we talked about Troy Duffy. Um, we devoted an entire month to Troy Duffy, in fact. Check it out. Because that's all you can, <laughs> that's all <laughs> yeah, you can that's do. Yeah, that's literally his entire filmography, including a documentary about, about him. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when you think about him, you know, 1994 is probably right around the time of Boondock Saints. Mm-hmm. And as Reservoir Dogs as well. Yeah. And then Kevin Smith was parallel to all that as well. So you have Tarantino, you have Troy Duffy, and you have Kevin Smith. You have all these indie guys who are thriving on paying blatant homage to the films that they love. Um, only difference is some of them were much more talented than others. <laughs> um, and in Stephen Norrington's case, I want to say that um, this is not an amazing directorial debut. However, mm-hmm. um, he, do- he does clearly have some talent, uh, especially in regards to effects work and lighting um and he worked on aliens um i yeah i totally believe that i didn't yeah. even look that up but I, I could have assumed as much uh if you didn't assume that you could at least assume that uh he has an affinity for the alien franchise uh because this the the machine in this film actually looks like a face hugger latched onto ed 209 and this and then that, that was the product was this machine and this is i mean they're doing a little I don't even. I couldn't even notice if there was much stop motion. I think this is a life-size, like scaled machine. Like this thing is big. It's legit. Uh, yeah, they they certainly made a life-size prop. Um, I don't know how maneuverable it was. Uh, it was probably just like not very. It was probably something you didn't want to put in front of the camera if you could help it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a couple shots, especially at the very end when it's shut down and it's immobile, so they don't have to worry about how good it looks when it's in motion. Where you do see it head to toe next to an actor, and it's like. It's like seven, eight feet tall. Oh, yeah, it's legit. Um, but aside from that, yeah, I think there there was a miniature that they're using for certain shots where they needed the whole movie, the, the whole body moving at once. Um, there may have been some stop motion work in showing it walk, um, although it's difficult to discern exactly what kind of effect was used to achieve that. Um, it's barely and, on screen. <laughs> yeah, it's barely on screen until the final act. Um, but uh, the majority of it is... Uh, it's typical like i used to call it a rubber monster hands effects mm-hmm. where it's like we can't afford the full suit on camera all the time so we'll just put a, a rubber monster glove on some guy and have him like slap people so a lot of times the the monster in this film the death the titular death machine is represented by just like a a, a mechanical like hydraulic hand or or just the head um so it's shown to you in, in like piecemeal until the very final act essentially um, but yeah, the, the references in this movie are out of control. But like you said, they don't exactly gel all that well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's the kind of thing that you, you can't help but smile at some of it. Because it's just like, for me in particular, like I watch movies like this and it gives me joy because I can't help but like admit that it's like, you know, if I had if I had the money and the resources, this probably is something like what I would make. Like, it's some stupid bullshit like this. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Do you want me to lay out the plot real quick? Or kind of? Uh, do you want to give the rundown? That's customarily your deal. But I mean, are you... you're more than welcome to, please. Uh, so, this uh, this film, Death Machine, is about a uh, near-future scenario. Uh, 2003, I, be- I believe, is the given year. Um, we have a giant megacorporation called Chank Armament. Um, which is doing some shady shit on the side, uh, and we see very early on that they're making like super soldiers. Um, and this is about a like a corporate uh, internal like strife situation where there's some high-level executives that have beef with each other, one of whom has a pet death machine, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then the buildings lock down, and it turns into Die Hard slash Aliens uh, involving a death machine instead of uh, John McClane and terrorists. Yeah, uh, the villain of this movie is Dante, played by Brad Dourif. Uh, Dante is a sexually repressed uh, <laughs> uh, super nerd on par with JB from uh, Grandma's Boy. Uh, he's dangerously uh, sexual, which is not what you want uh, in a guy. Uh, <laughs> not at all. Um, and I'm actually surprised Brad Dourif did not shed his one single tear. Because uh, the last four movies I've seen with Brad Dourif, he definitely sheds a tear. And I'm like, he's gotta, there's gotta be a moment in here where he does it. He does not. Yeah, uh, you know, personally, I think Brad Dourif is an amazing actor. Um, he, his, uh, his ability to exhibit rage is, mm-hmm. is second to none. Um, actually, there's a, a Toby Hooper movie. Man, I've been bringing up Toby Hooper like three episodes in a row now. Who's Toby Hooper? Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, yes. Um, it's called uh, Spontaneous Combustion. And the entire movie is Brad Dourif freaking out on people. And I want to see it mostly because the, the special effects work is supposed to be pretty tremendous for its time. Mm. Um, and Brad Dourif is, is the lead character. How often do you get that aside from, like, arguably child's play films and this one i guess because he does get top billing in this um this is a weird use of your brad Dourif, because like you said he doesn't cry and he doesn't really flip out on anyone till the very end really um he's he's weird he's really doing some acting stuff but it's not the right kind of acting stuff that i want to see from him um but it needs to be said uh, jack dante um you don't even have to you don't even have to pay attention very, very hard to notice that nearly every character in this movie, their name is a reference. Like, like I said, references on top of references. <laughs> what was he a reference to? Probably Joe Dante, director of Gremlins. I, I, I was thinking that. I'm like, is that supposed to be Joe Dante? I'm like, but that doesn't seem like, I guess. I'm like, okay. I, I, I thought maybe that was just, just a name on that one. It, yeah, more more likely than not, that it is Joe Dante. I mean, um, it it works. Plus, I think uh, what's his face? I can't remember his last name, but I believe the, the guy who did the original um, Boris Karloff Frankenstein makeup, his his first name was Jack. So, oh, that, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he did something silly like that. But just glancing at it, we literally have a character named John Carpenter in this film. We have a John Carpenter. We have my favorite, uh, Scott Ridley. Uh, <laughs> we have Wayland. Yutani and Sam Raimi. Yeah. So we're not even trying to flip the names around all the time. Like Scott Ridley, they tried a little, but Great. Sam Raimi, John Carpenter. <laughs> okay. That's pretty on the nose, dude. <laughs> That's as on the nose as it gets. But, but they don't call him John Carpenter in the film. It's just John. The, I actually really like that. It was it was really cute because they found ways to cue in the, the viewer. Like um, they'd have someone with an ID card and it would say Ridley, or it would say like Ridley S or like carpenter j or something like that and it's like oh that's cute um so it you know it's one of those things that the director probably was really happy to put in there but what value does it carry virtually none nothing yeah which is fine um uh rachel weiss rachel weiss is in here for three seconds i was actually expecting her to come back yeah she's well this was 1994 she was probably nobody yeah um, I mean, The Mummy wouldn't come out until 1999, and I'm sure she had other stuff in the UK before that. But I was going to say, wasn't The Mummy her American debut? Debut. I, I want to say it was. Like her um, big, her big, big picture. I mean, I wasn't very old at the time, but that was certainly the first time I remember seeing her. If you haven't watched The Favorite, I think it might, 
it was on HBO for a while. If you haven't if you haven't gotten around to that, I, I highly recommend that. No, I've heard it's I've heard it's very very good. It's my favorite Yorgos movie. Yeah, Yorgos Lanthimos. Yeah, that's just fun to say. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she's in here in a single boardroom scene, and then she gets one close up shot, mm-hmm. and she's out. Uh, she, uh, I don't know if she's wearing a black wig or if she dyed her hair. Um, but sure. the director made sure she had a, an eyebrow piercing because uh, just based on the aesthetic of this film and some of his later films, pretty sure he's into that. <laughs> we should talk about uh, Stephen Norrington just Stephen Stephen Norrington just a tad uh, because he I, I I don't know how many directors are like this where you have this movie which is kind of ambitious not not horrible but not good and then you have Blade which is all around awesome. Uh, it's just an excellent movie and then he did League of Extraordinary Gentlemen which I've seen one time and I couldn't tell you a single thing that happens in that movie uh, it's because it's not very good Yeah, um, it's on paper I mean it's based on an Alan Moore comic series mm-hmm. um, and it, it bears no resemblance to it whatsoever but on paper it's like to quote the title of the film itself an, an extraordinary concept like taking literary characters like fictional literary characters from that era from like victorian england um and essentially making a justice league out of them mm-hmm. that's such a cool idea yeah. um but in execution it it just really isn't very good and well i don't think it's necessarily his fault i heard that the uh, sir sean connery took a huge piece of that movie's budget like most of that movie's budget mm. I, I don't think that that would be the problem though, because the special effects at the time were serviceable. Like that wasn't the problem. Like the, the the like the props, the costuming, and the effects work are actually pretty good. Um, it's a handsome looking film most of the time. Um, it's the script. And it it just lacks cohesion. Like it just doesn't really come together all that well. How did he do Blade? That I'm like I'm thinking of the movies I've seen of his. I'm like, how did he do it? <laughs> Well, I, I can kind of see it. I mean, clearly the man has a thing for, like, the, the neo-goth aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Like, that's very much his wheelhouse. Uh, the music, in particular, the soundtrack played. Um, if you listen to the end credits of this movie yes. at all, yep. yeah, it's like, oh, so this is, like, literally him playing into his next film. <laughs> yeah. But I, so I kind of get that. And then also the way the action is structured in Blade, um, you can tell he likes over the top. Like, he likes big he likes he likes big, long, and noisy, and Blade certainly has that. Although it's executed far better in Blade than it is in this one, um, where the action mostly consists of people standing in place and firing unlimited clips of ammunition. Well, he also had the uh, the amazing Wesley Snipes in his prime. So, yeah. and apparently Wesley had a lot of input on the script on that, which um, does need to be said. David S. Goyer wrote Blade, and I I forever will say that I don't think he's as talented as we all think he is. David <laughs> I think he just got lucky a couple of times. And, <laughs> and he and he developed a reputation in Hollywood as the comic book guy. Mm. So they kept hiring him because they're like, oh, you know that shit. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Dark you? City. Yeah. Um, nice. That, that's a handsome film that also has a director who has a spotty record. Um, was it Alex Proyas, I think? Um, the gods of Egypt guy. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, what is it with these directors that like they put out like one like really almost iconic film, and then the rest of it is just. Well, I mean, there's, auteur theory is one of those things you either buy into or you don't. Um, I'm 
as I am with all things in life, kind of wishy-washy and non-committal uh, as to how I regard that. But, you know, a movie is not the product of a single person. Like, hundreds of hands touch it, and maybe they just had all the wrong hands touching it. Like, he, or maybe they just had all the right hands exactly one time. He did The Crow, Dark City, and a movie that get, gets a lot of shit, but considering the movies that he's made recently, I think actually kind of is pretty good. I, Robot. <laughs> he did I, Robot iRobot's okay. Um, uh, yeah. As far as watchability <laughs> goes, it's one of Will Smith's more watchable movies. That noise you made, Kyle, I think sums up the movie. Just, uh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> like, I'm not going to fight you too hard, but I'll push back a little. <laughs> Same. It's, it's not great, but it, of that era of Will Smith movies, it was fine. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't bad, it was fine. Um, but yeah, Stephen Dorrington, uh, apparently, um, I have to assume he worked as, like, someone involved with production design. Special effects, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, um, on Aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Death Machine in 1994 would be his uh, directorial and writing debut. So this is his baby. Everything you're seeing in it is his. If I worked on Aliens, I would have it tattooed on my arm, and then just, I would just bring it up in conversation, like, Hey, did you know I worked on Aliens? <laughs> I mean, I would probably do the same thing. Yeah. For, ser- seriously, I mean, the the number of people who can tra- trace like the legacy of their career back to that film is probably extraordinary. I, mean, uh, I would bring up Titanic just to like roundabout bring it back to James Cameron. Like, oh yeah, Titanic was a great film. It was directed by James Cameron. He also did Aliens. Have you guys seen Aliens? I actually worked on Aliens. Did you know I worked on Aliens? <laughs> Um, but yeah, Blade would be his his one true, yes. like, inarguably good film. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it needs to be said, apparently um, his career was riddled with uh, potential hits um, that he just didn't take at the time. Like, he was offered Blade 2, uh, he turned it down. Like, he, thank it, you. Yeah, uh, thank you, because yes. Guillermo, Guillermo did a fantastic job with that. Yeah. Um, he was offered Ghost Rider, didn't get that. Uh, that didn't matter. <laughs> yeah, that didn't matter. <laughs> um, but uh, an interesting one that pops up here is uh, he uh, he was supposed to direct um, a Shang-Chi film. Um, and the reason why I say that's interesting, it's not, Kyle. It's not actually interesting. Okay. Because it's just me, you know, talking film industry stuff. Um, they're actually in the process of making that film right now mm. like like marvel marvel studios is actually working on it right now so it wouldn't be until 2021 or 22 that we're actually going to get that so um who knows maybe we could have gotten it in 2001 when you know hong kong action movies and like crouching tiger hidden dragon were in vogue at the mm-hmm. time so i can see why that that project would have been considered at the time but we're not getting it till right about now um but yeah uh this is like I said, not a, not a fantastic film, but I do think it's fascinating that he he also wrote it, because um, hmm. it it just goes to show apparently he really wanted to make this film, and it shows because like, this is very much like a fanboy film. Oh yeah, ju- just without licensing any of the properties that he was a fan of. I, I kind of like some of the odes. Like there's I think there's a there's RoboCop, Die Hard, Aliens, Terminator Two, Terminator One. Um, <laughs> Let's see. I, I I think those are all the ones that I have off the top of my head right now. I uh, I mean, in the form of the casting, um, William Hootkins, mm-hmm. I would oh. argue is one of the most delightful aspects of this film. Um, I wanted more Richard Brake. 
yeah, uh, this was baby Richard Brake. I don't know what he was up to at the time, but this was before he would become, you know, Rob Zombie's best buddy and stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I did want more of him because he his character was kind of fun. I was actually expecting him to like be there until the final reel. Um, spoiler alert: he doesn't make it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, William Hootkins. I mean, he man in terms of resume. Uh, mm-hmm. That guy has the franchise. Yep. Indiana Jones, Star Wars, and Death Machine, <laughs> and Batman, Batman 89. Uh, he was Eckhart. Think of the future. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the, the cast, uh, yeah, um, it's kind of amazing that that was coming out of him. Cause, you, know, I, you don't realize it's him, yeah. Yeah, he does, I mean, the makeup job on him, too, you, it's like you really wouldn't think it's him. You just gotta talk <laughs> he's inaudible he's doing a drunk philip seymour hoffman voice he's yeah he kind of he's doing a hungover philip seymour hoffman yeah. you ain't got no future jack <laughs> uh but yeah i mean i want to say that his casting and more than likely brad Dourif's casting was probably you know a result of the director having some enthusiasm it's like oh you're the Star Wars guy. <laughs> it's like, be in my movie, please. Um, but yeah, uh, we should probably get into the film proper. Uh, so the first scene in this movie um, is actually why I want to see it. And it's not very good. Kyle's no. making a face right now that you, no. you folks at home can't see, but his face is not happy. <laughs> I was actually, I let out an audible, oh no. Because it's on Prime and I saw him like, Oh, this hasn't been updated. This is from. This is, they recorded this off the VHS and put it on here, and I'm like, uh oh, that's not a good sign. Yeah, um, actually, that's that's something really interesting that I guess now is the right time to talk about it. Um, the aspect ratio, of the presentation, I think it's four by three um, on on the Amazon Prime version. Uh, so that would be like a VHS tape like on a standard de- definition, like tube television. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the image quality is not very good. Um, and I want to say that the framing is off. Like, like this film was not meant to be presented in that format because there's a lot of really sloppy shots in here that I want to say it's not... I don't think this is, this is the movie we were intended to see because there's a lot of instances where people's heads are in the wrong position where it's like, that's blatantly out of frame. Like, that, that no cinematographer ever would... would accept that as as the way you frame a dialogue scene that's just not right that's not done um and stephen norrington doesn't he doesn't seem like an avant-garde director that would do crazy shit like that like this film isn't covered in like dutch angles and and weird transition edit like stuff like that like it's a pretty standard film in the way it's presented um so i want to say you're right that something something was done improperly in how they they transferred this film to digital um but the most important thing that i've kind of been uh walking around is uh the fact that there exists an uncut version of this film that uh, supposedly the director doesn't necessarily favor um this version the theatrical version um is apparently the cut he prefers but there's an uncut uncut version of the film which contains quite a bit more violence and additional scenes and whatnot um, that's only available overseas um, on like foreign region Blu-ray and whatnot. Uh, that may correct some of the flaws that Kyle and I are probably going to be addressing as we go forward. Um, but unfortunately, it wasn't available to either of us, so we ended up having to just watch the you know 
theatrical version, uh, the potentially neutered theatrical version mm-hmm. of the film. Um, but Kyle's given me some looks here. Did you find some factoids? Well, I was looking for it to see if I could find it on VHS. Like that, because I actually have a VHS player. I'm like, oh, I might be able to find this. Uh, there's a screener for sale, but I don't think uh, I don't think it's really. It's probably pretty hard to find. I'd probably have a better shot going to like thrift stores and places like that. See if I can find it. No, uh, someday I would like to see the uncut version of this film, but for now this is fine. Um, but um, going back to the first scene, um, so like you said, right from the get-go, the visuals, the image quality is not there. Um, the uh, aspect ratio is is a little bit irksome. Uh, and yeah, it's it's not pleasant to look at most of the time because the image quality is not that great. But um, on paper um, was how I was introduced to this film, because uh, like I said, I, I read reviews of this movie, and one of one of the reviews included a uh, just like a, a text description of the first scene. It was pretty evocative. Like the the language was it was it was a well written review, um, and so I imagined what the first sequence of this film was going to be like long before I would, would see it just the other day. Um, and the version in my head was so much better than, than what we got. And I want to say that's probably the story of this whole movie. Is like I said, writer-director, he probably imagined this scene looking a little better than it turned out, because this is a little bit of a letdown for me personally. Um, we we open on like a diner, and it's supposed to be like this like uh, post-crisis scene, where it's like a a team of like armored people with weapons uh, walk into this diner and there's like dead bodies everywhere and it's supposed to be like the place is in in chaos and it looks like like hell was unleashed on on a small town diner or something mm-hmm. um and then the way the the text description of the scene played out was that there's a, like a thumping noise on the soundtrack the whole time and we follow this this team of guys into the back room or like the restroom of the of the diner and we discover like a guy in like power armor, pun- like repeatedly punching a wall, like, like without any sort of mindset, he's just like standing in front of a wall and repeatedly punching the same spot over and over and over again. And there's a woman cowering in the corner. Um, on paper, that sounded amazing. I was like, man, I could see how you could make that those same beats really, really cool and like really kind of creepy. Um, but the way this film is shot and lit and the, like the lack of gore and stuff like that, it just doesn't work. And it doesn't help that the sound effect that they chose for him punching the wall sounds like sounds like a guy with like a boxing glove like punching like a padded wall. So it doesn't have like that menacing like crunch noise that you would expect. Like I was expecting like the sounds of like servos and like and like hydraulics going chunk 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 like stuff like that, but it just sounds like uh, I actually knew what kind of movie this was going to be from this opening scene. I'm like, oh, this is not going to be very good. It's going to be a little silly. The performances are going to be a little over the top. And the ending is going to have some cool stuff. And that's exactly what this movie was. Yeah, good call. <laughs> um, as soon as uh, William Hootkins, who gets, I believe, the first dialogue in the film, as soon as he opens his mouth, I, that's when I got up to speed with you, where I was like, ah, ah. writer-director, <laughs> that many F-bombs in the first scene of the movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the the interview. Yeah, they get this get this lady out here. She goes, "You're like, yeah, it was fucking scary. They had like a, he was like in the bathroom just punching the wall. It was fucking scary. <laughs> it's like the dumbest, sound, the dumbest." You sound like interview. Adam Sandler's friend. <laughs> I do that. I, I do that. I, how's it do it? How's I it do it? it. <laughs> <laughs> Best part of that movie. <laughs> But yeah, uh, when she uses the phrase man machine, I was like, oh, no. 
no. <laughs> well, this thing barely comes into play, which it, it comes into play at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, which I, it would just it was a weird way to start the movie, I guess. I just thought it was kind of strange. It was like Ed Two Hundred Nine came into this diner, and yeah, I get what you mean. It was like, yeah, this could have been really cool, but I think we needed to see all they needed to really do was just pull the camera back a little bit because so much of this movie is like we're just way too close to what we're supposed to be seeing. Well, again, um, this could be me trying to defend the film in an unwarranted capacity, but uh, the the aspect ratio. Like, if this yeah. was widescreen, maybe the framing would have been less less up in your face all the time, because it is a little disturbing, like, the number of facial close-ups there are in this film. But, um, yeah, uh, the scene could have been better. I think a lot of it had to do with the sound design, and it doesn't help that the... Uh, by the way, this uh, super soldier, this uh, man that's punching the wall, he's dressed like head to toe in like black. It's like really bulky power armor, but it looks like it's like made out of like couch fabric, <laughs> like leather couch fabric, as opposed to like rigid metal, which is Be- what I imagined. Beetleborg? Is that a thing? Yeah, big bad Beetleborgs. Yeah, big ba- <laughs> I don't know. It reminded me of big bad big bad Beetleborgs. <laughs> That's the suit. Typical average teens. <laughs> oh, it's on Netflix. Look at that. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing. And they're uh, the flabber, the the witch genie guy. He looks like Jay. <laughs> he looks like Jay Leno. <laughs> I don't know why they decided to make him look like Jay Leno. But, um, yeah, Beetleborgs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that was the thing. But yeah, point is, um, the the armor that they have in it. It's not terribly convincing. It looks soft rather than rigid, which is kind of a problem when uh, the name of this project is codenamed Hardman, uh, which is a fine name for a, like a super soldier program, um, but it just doesn't look right. Like it, it looks like it's gonna flip and flop if he if he breaks into a sprint or something, which is why the actors probably kind of like march very gingerly uh, mm-hmm. whenever they need to move wearing this costume. Um, yeah, the scene concludes basically with William Hootkin saying, like, eh, this shit happens all the time. Um, meaning uh, this company, Chank, that he works for, uh, they're doing, like, a super soldier program on the sly, and apparently it's not working out. Yeah. Like, the, this is an accident that, uh, as, as the film progresses, we learn they're trying to cover up. Uh, so there's collateral damage that comes about as a result of, I guess, these super soldiers escaping the facility or something, and just going to town on folks and then um, having a mental breakdown and falling on the ground dying. Um, so he's he's not surprised uh, at seeing all this chaos unfold. Um, but but then the movie opens up a bit and we get introduced to all the other characters. Uh, the main character of which is a uh, character's name is Hayden Kale. And Kale, oddly yeah. enough, uh, yeah, Kale. Uh, oddly enough, this actress is like kind of the one that stood out to me the least, <laughs> but she's also the main character. Um, it's uh, Ellie Poget or Poget. She does TV. <laughs> oh, okay. That that explains a lot, actually. She's oh, like had a she significant... was in a she was in Lawnmower Man two, and a, a movie that I watched for the first time not too long ago, uh, The Rift. Mm. Uh, so I have seen her before. I just she just didn't stand out at all. But uh, being as she's a TV actress, yes, she has been on NCIS. <laughs> of course, yes. <laughs> Uh, my favorite character, I actually, we'll, we'll get to him in a little bit. Uh, yes, yeah, so she's going through a crowd of people. They're like, what the fuck is with all of your, uh, you guys are awful. It's a bad corporation. This is awful. Uh, feeling a little bit like, uh, Miguel Fair in, uh, Robocop. Like, it's just, it, the press is on this corporation. She's like, listen, 
you will get all of your answers later. She gets punched in the face, too, which is pretty funny. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, she gets punched in the face by a lady, um, I think. It sounded like a lady punched yeah, her. Yeah, the, the sound effect they used for that punch was comical. Yeah, it's, you don't... It's, it's like on the soundboard, just the... <laughs> I guess she might be, like, the spokesperson for the board, but, yeah, she's got a meeting with Richard Brake and Hooken, uh, with Hookins, uh, Hootkins. Um... And it's not really clear what the problem is, but yeah, I guess you're right. I guess they're having problems with this stuff, and then Dante's a piece of shit, and like, but he's like our our biggest asset. Like he's so important to the company. And he's like, well, fuck that dude. I want him out of here. I, I didn't really understand what the conflict was. It doesn't really matter uh, so much what the conflict is because once Richard Brake is out of the picture, it's a the movie takes the movie starts to take place. Yeah. Um basically she's essentially the head of the company but there's like a hierarchy in place um so richard brake has she they're like on the level with each other and william hootkins is up there as well um but yeah the the conflict is that they're they're trying to avoid like bad publicity um and she wants to eliminate an employee uh brad Dourif, yes jack dante because he has too much autonomy he has a a location in the building called vault 10 where he's doing experiments uh, where they have no insight into what those experiments are. Also, there's like whispers that another one of the head executives uh, was killed in a shark attack um, very recently. Did not catch that. Yeah, um, it, I can see why you would miss it. It's very cluttered. This portion of the film is very noisy and cluttered and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But point is, she really wants Jack Dante out of the picture. She wants to fire Brad Dourif, but Richard Brake is pushing back because... Uh, Dante does good work when it comes to building weapons, and uh, he's also absolutely terrified of the man. Uh, yes, so Brad Dourif, I'm sure you've come in contact with somebody like this before. He is the older brother of one of your friends, and your friend has parents that do not give a shit about them. Like, they do not care what they do, and they still have this older, like, 22-year-old guy that lives in the garage or in the basement, <laughs> and that's this guy, and he's just like... You know, even at, at your age of like thirteen, you're like that guy's a fucking loser. <laughs> he's got long hair. He's got that jacket, cut up jeans. I'm like, he tries to be cool. He tries to look cool, but you're like, dude, you're a fucking loser. And I'm thirteen, and I know you're a fucking loser. That's how Brad Dourif. Uh, that's how I see him in this movie. Yeah, um, and he's he's got the metalocalypse hair, and uh, I was just the... saying, very much rooted in the '90s. Yeah. Yeah, he's got the metalocalypse hair. He's got the the leather. It's not a duster, but it is a long leather jacket. Um, he he, he was yeah. <laughs> he's he's got a look. Uh, yeah, and his uh, she ends up going to his little den, uh, and it's got tons of graffiti because he's a douchebag, um, and he's he's got this was common. Uh, for losers back when there was no internet was the pulling out of uh, nudie pics and posting them on the wall again like a fucking like teenager that parents don't give a shit about like yeah uh, he's watching cartoons at one point um, he's just a he's just a loser yeah um, folks at home uh, there's a controversial uh, computer game that I don't even know if it's still available for sale it's called Hatred um, look up the main character from that game and uh, put Brad Dourif's face on him and also make him not jacked because Brad Dourif is, you know, while, while ferocious, he's diminutive. We um, had a PC game and it was similar to Duke Nukem, but it was, it was, uh, it was, bef- 
It might have been a little bit before Duke Nukem, but same kind of idea. First-person shooter. There's blood and stuff. We had it on our on our computer. Where Dad wouldn't let us play. Like, it was too violent. I'm like, just wait. Just you have no idea what video games are capable of, old man. Uh, uh, but yeah, th- there's some some of the the sequences in here reminded me of that of that game, or yeah, like Duke I'm- Nukem. Stephen Norrington has played Doom. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I mean, there's even corridors in this movie, <laughs> for fuck's sake. Uh, we don't go so far as to use any like the monster cries from Doom, um, which was actually really a thing in the 90s. Um, I think Relic made liberal use of like uh, imp noises from the Doom game. Uh, but yeah, uh, his, his Vault 10 area apparently you need like special access to get down there um and that's actually an annoying part of the script there's a lot of talk about access codes and id badges and stuff that um i'm gonna try to avoid bringing up because it it gets really frustrating and annoying um but point is uh kale storms out of that meeting and that's where we we get our our one close-up of rachel vise by the way yeah Uh, she she cautions her about uh dante like he's dangerous you gotta watch your step around him but uh, Kale goes to visit him in his workshop. Like you said, there are nudie magazines strewn all about. He also has a bunch of Thundercats uh, action figures strewn about. Um, we do a couple of uh, lingering close-ups on a Mum-Ra action figure. Uh, so hopefully the Thundercats people got paid. Probably not. <laughs> but no. um, one thing that I, I could not get past in this scene, like I was paying attention to the dialogue, but like you said, he's watching cartoons so he's like actively ignoring her Mm -hmm. while she's trying to like tell him like hey you're on the bubble we're gonna try to push you out of the company um he has this it's an animation it's not a cartoon uh it's an animation that it's a very short loop um that clearly was made specifically for the film so it's not something you would license uh they probably did that to save money um but it's just like a guy in a lab coat like killing a dog um, and he like hits it with a mallet and he like stomps on it and he like slices it up but it's like five seconds long and it's on a loop and he just keeps watching it I'm like who in the world would find that entertaining <laughs> like like I'm sorry that that's not that's not a cartoon like that's just an animation loop um, and I get it you know this movie was produced on a budget of six and a half million dollars and it was a first time director work with what you got but you know find find a better way <laughs> like it, it was just like I, I they had it on screen long enough that I, I noticed that it just kept repeating over and over and over again um but yeah he's kind of a lecher and uh, he does keep going on and on about like recognizing her from someplace which does come back a little later in the film it means um, nothing yeah it really does mean nothing in fact this whole dialogue exchange really does amount to nothing other than her like kind of lightly threatening him and him being creepy he's and, creepy uh, yeah yeah he's very creepy and uh basically she just kind of storms out and nothing really comes of it he's the reason why we have hr departments now mm. it's the best way to put it yeah that would make sense um, um do we get introduced to our goons yeah i think it's right after the scene where uh, we get to meet the uh the diehard element of the film it is it even it kind of shocked me because I was like the way they come in in their van I'm like well that's really diehard esque and I didn't even realize that the one dude with the glasses I'm like oh my god this is crazy diehard that kind of solidified it for me I'm like okay I have to keep I have to keep noticing the references because they are blatant in this movie 
Yeah, so what Kyle is alluding to here is we actually have a cast member from Die Hard um, in, in one of the same roles. Uh, this, this guy, he, he's one of those guys. Um, I didn't know his name until just now, but I, I certainly know his face and his stature because he's very large for a Hollywood personality. Um, this is Andreas Wisniewski, um, and he plays Carl's brother in the original Die Hard. Uh, oh, so it is Carl's brother. It is Carl's brother. Oh, no shit. Yes. I didn't um, even re- I'm like, he looks a lot like the diehard guy. That's nuts. Yeah, uh, he's a very handsome, very, very, very tall man. And uh, he's had some action-heavy roles. Um, I, famously, he was in, uh, I believe it was The Living Daylights, as like the heavy from a James Bond movie. Hmm. Uh, so he moved up in the world a little bit right after Die Hard. And then uh, also, in the Mission, Poss- Mission Impossible films, uh, he's Max's bodyguard. So he's the guy who puts the shroud on Ethan Hunt in the first film, and he has a cameo in one of the later ones. I promise I won't hurt you. (laughs) Oh my god, that outfit. (laughs) Like, he looks like he's going yogging in the mountains. (laughs) I believe it's pronounced yogging. My favorite character in the film was uh, John Sherian. He plays Sam Raimi. He's He's the main dude. He's our main guy. Um, if you take a look, uh, he's never, like, I don't think he's been a lead, uh, never had, like, a leading role, but he's been in uh, The Machinist, The Fifth Element, Lost in Space, Love Actually, and Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, he's a that guy. <laughs> I've never <laughs> seen him, though. That's the thing. I'm like, I have no idea who this guy is. I, I actually think that's kind of remarkable, because, yeah, I don't, I didn't recognize him at all, but when you look at his credits, it's like, that's a working actor, man. Like, that's a guy who's put in some work in a lot of big productions. Um, but, yeah, he's essentially, like, our main dude. Um, so he and Kale are kind of our, our mains. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe I want to say, like, Trent Reznor kind of had this look around the 90s. Yes. Um, not so much these days, but um, there is a, uh, well, there is a, uh, a role-playing game called uh, Shadowrun that uh, it's like Dungeons & Dragons, but cyberpunk and the, the main novelty of it, at least for, for me, uh, has always been that it sent, it primarily takes place in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> um, and uh, it needs to be said, around 1994, Shadowrun was a really big thing. In fact, the concept of cyberpunk was kind of, it kind of like originated in, I want to say, like the mid to late 80s and really kind of started to touch the mainstream um, in the early to mid 90s which is you know what what got us things like johnny mnemonic and you know later the matrix and stuff and certainly this film uh so i want to say like the concept of these characters these like humanitarian terrorists (laughs) um and like their outfits and like the the crazy like red paint on the one guy's eye and stuff like that i want to say that that was more than likely drawing inspiration from either cyberpunk uh novels of which there were several uh just prior to the release of this film or Shadowrun or maybe even the game itself Cyberpunk which is due to get a uh, game someday it's one of the most delayed games in recent history um, maybe we'll get it someday I wish Utani the guy who plays Utani was played by Jason Scott Lee uh, he could have done it um, it's absolutely. right there I think he would have been kind of funny too like because there's no comic, this needed comic relief. That's I think one of the criticisms I have. Like you need somebody who's kind of funny just to kind of break the tension. Well, um, I mean, by the time we get to the elevator scene, which is one of the one of the better scenes in the whole movie, um, in terms of like 
payoff and whatnot. There are two uh, good scenes in the movie. That's the other one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> by the time we get to the elevator scene, it really solidified in my head. That's like, man, I keep thinking of Deep Rising, and now I just can't stop thinking about Deep Rising because you know elevators. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, they they needed a um, what have we been calling him? Uh, JKOC. Uh, Kevin J. O'Connor. <laughs> Kevin J. O'Connor, yeah. Yeah, we, KJ O'Connor. <laughs> like, we, we really needed him to bring some levity um, because, yeah, we, we don't really have... We don't have any good dialogue in this movie. Um, sorry, Stephen Norrington, you're not a good writer of dialogue. Um, but it would have been nice to just have a funny guy or something. Somebody we can reliably cut to when we need a break in the action. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Yutani is kind of a walking stereotype, unfortunately. Is he? Well, he's doing an Asian thing. Like, just a stereotypical, just Asian thing. Like, he does lots of hit and oh. like stuff, and then uh, when he pulls his that. underwear out of his pants, he that does was like awesome. A, he does like a, mm, like a Toshiro Mifune <laughs> kind of face, and like, and uh, he says Shoryuken at one point, by the way. Yes, he says, Shoryuken! <laughs> it's like, oh my god, Street Fighter references? <laughs> like it, well, I mean, what do you expect? It's the 90s. Yeah, I want to say he's a, he's he's like me, he's mixed, but um, this actor, Martin McDougal, um, he doesn't have a Wikipedia page, and I'm not about to dig through IMDb, but I want to say he, I saw him in a Scott Atkins movie, like, just last year. That's um, probably accurate. It seems I, like his wheelhouse. I think it was a Legacy of Lies, and if that was him, it might not have been. It could have just been someone that looks like him. If that was him, he's actually a good actor. Like, <laughs> like um, if if that's the same guy, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, Yutani is uh, not someone I would have expected to last as long as he did in this film. <laughs> but um, what's the name of Scott? Act? Is it uh, Tre- uh, Legacy of Lies? Correct. Yep, that's him. Hey, good eye, Trevor. <laughs> Recognizing people from. 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, we're introduced to this um, quote-unquote terrorist group. And the, uh, the reason why we've been calling them the diehard contingent is uh, because they gain entry to the building like literally the same way the terrorists show up in, well, quote-unquote terrorists um, in the first diehard show They're up. They're exceptional like, thieves. <laughs> and they're going to move on to kidnap. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, they roll up in a, in a truck. Like, like a delivery truck, uh, very, very, very similar uh, to how they did Die Hard. Um, but yeah, there's uh, Wayland and Yutani and Raimi, and uh, they're they're like a cyberpunk group of dudes, and we don't really know what they're up to at this point in the film, uh, but they're a, a quirky band of people that they hang out in the back of this truck, and they're like waiting for the right time to strike, and we don't really... We know they're headed to Chank, but we don't know for what reason, and it, not terribly important, but um, much like Die Hard, uh, there is a, a late game reveal that kind of mm-hmm. makes them, solidifies them as like good guys as opposed to like morally questionable guys. I thought I missed it, but I didn't give a shit. Like I, I thought, like I, <laughs> I thought that I'm like, what are these guys doing here? I'm like, you know what? I don't think it's important. I think we just need to wait until I read the, the description of the sh- of the movie. I'm like, I just need to wait for the machine to get get loose. That's all I'm waiting for. I mean, they titled it Death Machine. Yeah, they, they they know where where their resources need to be devoted. <laughs> I know what I need to be paying attention to, and it's yeah. I need to be watching the scenes where the machine eats people. Yeah, and there, fortunately, there's only a couple more scenes preceding the arrival of the death machine. But um, we get a, a scene where Brad Dourif appears in Kale's office. 
um, and she tries to like record him for no reason. I don't understand what this exchange was about. Like it was a, it was like nothing. I don't even know what they were talking about. Yeah, it's kind of a nothing scene. <laughs> it's where he points out that she was in a nudie mag. He's like, I remember where I saw you from, and it's uh, she was in a nudie mag. He's like, that was a long time ago, and there's a gun, and then he leaves. Like, that's the scene. Yeah, she uh, ironically she gets the single tear. <laughs> there's one point where he sits down and his eyes are watery i'm like did he just do it did i are they gonna bring it back later or something i'm like it's gotta be here it's gotta be here he does it well, in every fucking movie well, you need to understand kyle like brad duroff's acting power his his acting prowess <laughs> is such that the director told him nope don't do that and he just like like sucked it sucked back, it back up in. into his eye <laughs> it does kind of work in lord of the rings uh, when he beholds the massive orc army that Sorrow that Saruman has uh, created, he just lets that one single term. Like I could see like, that's kind of cool. I'll give you that. And he does an Exorcist three. I'm like, dude, I already saw it. <laughs> it's old news, man. Well, see, Kyle, like, what if he did a uh, a, a the Rock thing where he switched eyebrows on you? Would, you? would would you be impressed if he switched eyes? I mean, yeah, I would be impressed by that, but I know I know which eye to look at. I believe it's the right eye. Okay. Well, <laughs> or I mean, his like, left. I mean, to continue the wrestling reference, my dad always used to joke that Scott Steiner was definitely left-handed because when he'd do his like bicep pose, he'd always like put the left one in front of the camera. Mm. <laughs> it's like mm, he probably has one of those Roy Jones arms where it's like the one is way bigger than the other. Yeah. But, um, yeah. The the genius of the Rock, such as the genius of the Rock, that when he when he became corporate rock, he switched eyebrows. It's no longer the people's <laughs> eyebrow; it's the corporate eyebrow. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Uh, but yeah, this this dialogue scene is really nothing. I did like um, when he leaves. He does. He puts his arms up and he slaps all the IKEA lights hanging from the ceiling. Um, it, it's just an acting thing that he just saw the lights hanging and he determined that you know, hey, they're just high. They're just low enough that I can slap them on my way out, so I may as well. Um, and then they do a uh, hasty slow motion shot that you can tell wasn't intended to be slow motion, um, probably because he improvised that. And they shoot like the opposite angle, showing Kale like watching him leave, and like the lights are still swaying. So they probably had a bunch of PAs run in there, and he was like, "Go, go, slap the lights. We need, we need to have that end the scene. It looks cool. <laughs> Thanks, Brad." <laughs> um, but uh, finally, we get the death machine, I believe, when uh, Richard Brake is alone in the boardroom. Um, and we get a confrontation between him and Brad Dourif, and what's really strange about this scene... The spitting? Is, well, that too, but, <laughs> but but what's really strange about the dialogue of the scene is this this is proto-Heath Ledger Joker dialogue. A little bit. Like, with the pencil and yeah. order and chaos? He's like, isn't that so much... If, this is also hmm. proto-Zorg from The Fifth Element, you know, when he breaks the glass on his desk and he's like well look at all that like, yeah. <laughs> it's like you got all these fancy lights and twirling thingamabags <laughs> like it's basically he he goes on and on about order and chaos and how chaos is more entertaining than order and i was like oh my god this is like yeah steven norrington you're not very good at dialogue but you're put a pin in that like other people are going to make use of this there must be a book how do they, I mean? I don't think Christopher Nolan watched this movie or took notes from it, so there must be some book where a character talks about this. I mean, you might be surprised though, because I believe Stephen Norrington is British, and you know, may, maybe you know, he's probably a contemporary of Christopher Nolan. 
So I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they checked out each other's work at some point. Possibly. Um, but I, I would never accuse anyone of stealing from this movie. <laughs> yeah, no. Because this, no. this movie already steals from everyone else. So. There, there <laughs> was a couple of moments where I'm like, I've seen something like that in another movie. Something very similar to the point where I'm like, hmm, I wonder if they kind of got, uh, I wonder if they got inspiration from that. But it's it very easily could be this director got the inspiration from another movie and that other director got similar inspiration well i mean you never know inspiration comes from the funniest of places like there's a lot of people that like a lot of people in the film industry that when questioned as to like their some of their favorite movies sometimes they offer some weird answers where it's yeah. like, i have no idea what that is like famously um well not famously but for me um S- sylvester stallone um in an interview um was asked about like one of his favorite movies and he's like Rugi's Ru- bump yeah Rugi's bump and everyone in the room was like what what and my dad of all people was like oh i know Rugi's bump <laughs> it's like um it was a very 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 old rookie of the year basically hmm. um and it's about a kid that has like a one big arm or something and he throws the ball hard <laughs> so it's literally rookie of the year but way before it's time hmm. um but apparently that was an inspiration just alone but uh, yeah, Richard Brake is alone, and Brad Dourif sneaks up on him because he has ninja powers. He can just appear in places. Uh, he does that repeatedly throughout this film. Um, and he uses hacking as his catch-all for explaining how he does this. Yes. Because, because 90s. <laughs> and computers can do anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. H- hacking was a, was, a, was an abstract idea back then. It's like, it's anything you want it to be. <laughs> Honestly, nobody really knew how computers worked. So no. if you, if computers were involved, oh no, it's the end of everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but yeah, hacking is the catch-all for how everything is done in this film. Um, but he confronts Richard Brake alone in the in the break room or the the boardroom rather, which uh, looks very much like something out of Blade Runner. By the way, Blade Runner was another one that I kept like I I wrote it down like two times. I'm like Blade Runner. I'm like, nah, I must be thinking of something else. But yeah, there there's. There's strange Blade Runner references. Uh, just off the top of my head, and I didn't put any thought into this, I can think of the boardroom looks very similar. The interview. I think that the, the interviews. Uh, there's a couple of shots where she's doing interviews, and I'm like, that feels a little bit like uh, well, Blade Runner. Well, in the scene where he appears in her office, um, there's a computer reading out data to her. Um, that It's very reminiscent of... Uh, Decker doing his investigation, the the zoom in, zoom out sequence. I've had that um, movie on my mind for a couple of weeks now. I think I might watch it tonight. I, I, I was under the assumption you always have it on your mind, Kyle. I do, but <laughs> I like, do. It, it's just recently <laughs> been on my... That and The Fifth Element, those two have just been kind of competing. I'm like, I want to watch one of those two. Watch both of them. I might. Yeah, we've already brought both of them up on this single recording. Yeah. Um, uh, and also, I think uh, her smoking all the time reminded me yes. a lot of Aliens and Ripley, and um, you know that's another Ridley Scott. We like we have a Ridley Scott character in this movie. <laughs> There's some really good smoke lighting. There's a really good smoke lighting scene. That's um, more Blade Runner shit. Yeah, that, that, I was gonna say the with Sean Young when she first meets Deckard. I'm like that that scene specifically. Um, what's with the orange juice on the nightstand? That I have no explanation. Okay, because it comes up a little bit later. I'm like, she's got a, a, a nighttime glass of orange juice on the nightstand. Very strange. 
I mean, I wouldn't put it past Stephen Norrington to like do something like have a glass of blue milk on the table or something in the background. Maybe it's like a it's a Godfather it's like a Godfather thing. It's like I can't put oranges in here, but I can put orange juice on the in the glass. <laughs> well, what they needed to do is have somebody flip out about cornbread or something. Because <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't like the cornbread either. <laughs> yeah, um, the scene also between. The, the, uh, sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. The the uh, the building, the miniature they used to yeah. render the chank building is very reminiscent of like Blade Runner. I think that's the one that's the one big one. I kept thinking I'm like maybe I'm thinking of something else but I'm like because it's not it's not explicit like the other references. Yeah. Uh, but go ahead. Oh no I was going to say this boardroom scene is uh, again I can barely understand what Brad Dourif is saying in this movie because he's like like whisper saying stuff and it's uh, I, I don't know what he says for most of the movie um, but yeah he's going back and forth with Richard Brake and Richard Brake is terrified of him uh, it, I feel like it should be vice versa because Richard Brake is very menacing. <laughs> uh, I don't know why he's afraid of him, but they should just have a creep off where they just hiss at each other. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. They just stand in each other's grills and hiss for also, twenty minutes. <laughs> Richard Brake's got like a foot on him. Like oh, Brad, yeah. Brad Dourif's like five eight. <laughs> yeah, just you know, Rich, just just use that reach. Just yeah. hang back. Like he can't get to you. <laughs> he's like Anderson Silva compared to him. <laughs> yeah, just, just put put up the stick. The jab is on. You can knock him off. <laughs> with the like leaning back jab no oh. if, if he makes it back to the corner so you can give him some advice just remind him it's like dude you killed the wains like both of them <laughs> you're fine oh. <laughs> mma side note did you see the clips of uh, uh nate diaz getting his ass pummeled by this by the dude no i didn't this this guy was dr- like like picking up like doing like freestyle wrestling just <laughs> slamming him i've never seen somebody manhandle uh, Nick Diaz like that. It was insane. Uh, I had to find the I had to find the clips. I'm like I gotta show. Them. I, I didn't send it to you. Cause I'm like Trevor saw it. <laughs> he no, had no, to I have it. it. So please do. I'll have to send that to you. But yeah, this this boardroom scene. I guess he's like uh, kind of th- he's threatening him or he's doing. You know something bad's about to happen. But they start. Sp- Richard Brake kind of spits a little bit, and I don't know if like. Uh, Brad Dourif, like in the moment, was like just u- use it as like a I'm gonna do this dialogue, but I'm gonna spit it. But he's it's definitely like we have spit acting here. They're spitting back and forth talking. Yeah, I think Richard Brake initiates it, but again, I want to say Brad Dourif decided to take the material for a walk and do some improv. Um, yeah. Because um, funny enough, I watched this movie in a horrible way. Um, so I was with my girlfriend. Um, she had the dishwasher running. Um, there was a heater repeatedly turning on and off. She was working next to me on a computer, so I had the volume turned down way low, mm. and I had the subtitles on. So I got all the dialogue things. Ah. Um, but in terms of like audio, there there may have been a lot of like stuff. Like I didn't hear any of the music until the end credits. Um, didn't affect the experience too much. I didn't mm. miss much, but uh, this was a case of me needing the subtitles to actually follow it. But um, what I'm getting to is when Brad Dourif is spitting at him on the subtitles, it says, uh, in Sylvester the Cat voice. Yeah. So he's doing a Sylvester, like, like yeah. thing. And he does that a few times. And, you know, it does actually kind of work for his character because, like you said, he was watching cartoons in his vault. Yeah. So he is kind of a man-child in some ways, even though he's terrifying. Um, but uh, we finally get introduced to the, uh, the death machine, uh, <laughs> the titular death machine, um, in the form of Brad Dourif holding up a like a radio device that has a like a dead man switch on it. Yeah. So like if he takes his thumb off of this button, uh, it goes. 
and, and we get some uh, Terminator-esque POV shots of something charging down the hallways. And uh, actually, I was kind of impressed. I didn't expect the death machine to move quickly in this movie. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it never moves quickly on camera. It doesn't um, move, Trevor. Uh, <laughs> the machine itself doesn't really move. What we're see, what we're shown, it is moving quickly. Yeah, um, the the POV shot yes. is just it's tearing down the hallway. But when it's on camera, yeah, it's barely it's, it's barely mobile. It's an inanimate object. <laughs> yeah, it, it yeah it doesn't move very well. But um, we keep cutting back and forth, and this is a situation where this movie is two hours long. And it didn't need to be. No. Um, where we could have trimmed some of this fat, and it just keeps cutting back and forth between the like Richard Brake waiting for something to happen and uh, Brad Dourif kind of twiddling his thumbs, and eventually the thing does show up, and it's kind of cool because it like bursts through the wall. There's a lot of wall bursting. Yeah, and I like that because you know, based on the way the thing looks, when you do finally get to see it, it's like yeah, it would just go through the wall. Like, yeah. It doesn't need doors. Um, and yeah, we it starts a chase sequence where uh, Richard Brake is just kind of like running down the hallways in this thing. We keep getting Robo Vision, where um, it, its HUD its HUD reminded me of uh, the beach, uh, the video mm-hmm. game sequence in the beach, bit, yeah. where it's it's kind of cartoony. It doesn't look like a Terminator like ultra serious like logical HUD. It's the weirdest part of that, and otherwise kind of strange movie is the weirdest weirdest thing. I'm glad you made me laugh. That was an interesting movie. It's a good movie. Um, yeah. yeah, I actually really like this scene. I think it goes on a little too long, and I think that we could have had a. I think, I think Richard Brake's death is not bad. I think it could have been. It could have been really gory. Like this would have been a, a good time to just like, maybe chop about ten seconds off this chase and then just up, obliterate him. Yeah, um, I agree wholeheartedly. In fact, um, not to completely derail us, but this is something that I really wanted to talk about about this movie. Um, is that like we said up front, we, we watched the theatrical cut of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, there does exist an uncensored cut, which presumably has quite a bit more violence. Um, that being said, I can only work with what I've seen, and uh, a major problem I had with this movie was the lack. There's a complete and total lack of gore in this film. Um, there's a lack of gore, but it's not because they didn't do it. That's the thing. Is you can You can kind of see it. Just for a second, you can see it. But they I'm don't. I'm not positive. Like I'm, I'm not positive that's the case because um, while we, before we recorded, I did watch the elevator sequence wherein uh, William Hootkins is eliminated from the cast. Yeah. And it's not. It's still. There's more, but there's still not as much as I would have wanted. Yeah. Um. But there's a thing that I, and I have two thoughts at once. So try to bear with me here. Um. First thought is that when when you're doing like a like a violent monster movie or something one technique that is very common is you do like uh the witch or deep rising mm-hmm. wherein you have exactly one kill very early in the film that really spells it out to the audience this is what happens when this thing gets a hold of you mm-hmm. and it it you don't need to do that over and over and over again because you had that one shocking moment where it, we the audience are clued in on the fact that this is why the characters in the movie are scared because yeah. they don't want that to happen to them and now we all know what it looks like so if we obscure future deaths we have that image still in the back of our mind so that's visual information that's really important to have uh, that you carry along with you throughout the entire experience but the other point that I had was that there's a couple of instances of dialogue being d- 
devoted to referring to the death machine which is te technically called the war beast um, as being a morale destroyer um, and when you look at the way it's built it has a xenomorph-esque face yes um, so think venom from a from spider-man mm -hmm. um, and that has a mess of claws which are actually the front cover of the film um, that that claw hand so it has a whole bunch of claws and gnashing teeth, and it's just a, a mess of razor blades and rotating and spinning bladed instruments. Uh, so when you factor that in and you think of the phrase morale destroyer, what I think of is something that turns people into hamburger. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I needed to see, because when I think of morale destroyer, I think of something charging into a pit of people and taking one of them and rendering them into hamburger so the other people have to carry that image with them and know that the thing that's hunting them will do that to them. Yeah. So it's going to kill you, but it's not going. It's it's not going to kill you good. It's not going. You're not going to get a pretty death. Um, and I needed that because the characters needed that because no one's terribly afraid in this movie for the most part. But we get di dialogue devoted expressly to the idea of saying that the thing hunts by fear, mm -hmm. and it's like we need to give these people a reason to be afraid of the thing. Like the Jeepers Creepers guy. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, another movie that does that really well is The Ring, the American uh, Ring, where like mm -hmm. the opening scene is the one girl and her face is just all fucked up, and then yeah, then you have the rest of the movie. Like, that yeah. was actually yeah, really good setup. And so, the, rest of the, the rest of the movie, we have that repetition of seven days. Yeah. And we have we know Naomi. what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah, we have Naomi Watts, who we don't want to see that happen to. No, she's pretty hot. Um, yeah. She already has her mouth hanging open. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm trying to think of the sequence here. Did you take a lot of notes for this? None. None? Okay. I was like, wow, you are like you are like like calling it back perfectly. I'm like I'm like trying to think of where we're at now. The goons. I think after uh, he's dead, that's when Hookins calls uh, Kale and like, hey, something bad happened. We have to, you know, get back over here and figure this thing out. Uh, simultaneously, the goons are making their way into the building. Um, I don't remember how they all end up meeting each other. So yeah, you're right. Uh, Hootkins shows up, um, and he discovers Richard Brake's mangled body. Um, so when Richard Brake dies, we cut away from it. We do get to see a little bit of the aftermath, but it's not very much. And he's freaking out, and he brought Kale with him, uh, because now she's the head of the company, essentially, because Brake is gone. And also, during that dialogue exchange between Brad Dourif and Richard Brake, we learned that um, the previous uh, high-level executive that was killed in the shark attack was also killed by the war beast. Um, so, apparently, Brad Dourif is working his way through the corporate ladder, like, from the top down. And uh, he has, he's transfixed on Kale. Like, we, we did see that he's been observing her from security camera footage and stuff. So it seems like he's, he's kind of trying to maneuver her into the position she's in now. There is one moment that I kind of liked uh, in that boardroom scene with uh, Richard Brake. He has a good line. He's like, patience, dude. I don't know. It was a really funny <laughs> delivery. But also, uh, he's mad at, uh, he's mad at uh, Richard Brake because... Uh, he gave access to Kale. Like he gave her access. And he's like, you gave her access. He's like, she stole that from me. He's like, oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't think of that as an option. I'm like, this is kind of fun. It was pretty good. Yeah, it was fun. And also, I like that when a uh, break is pleading for his life, uh, Brad Dourif like retorts like, don't talk shit about my girlfriend. Yeah. 
It's like, oh, yeah, he's he's a little uh, off his rocker. Yeah, (laughs) but yeah, um, we get a converging of all the parties essentially. So the the terrorists they break in because uh, Andreas Wisniewski uh, is an employee there and apparently knows the building quite well, and he has like a security access, and they like they we get a. CGA, CGI wireframe uh, video display of like what their plan is and uh, Raimi kind of runs us through what the plan is uh, they're trying to get to like the corporate mainframe I think that's in like the basement of the building or something and they need a high level I think they need a high level executive to get them access but they mm-hmm. do have an alternative um, involving explosives and drills and whatnot. Um, so yeah they break in and uh, we get a scene where Kale uh fires uh brad durf um so she takes advantage of her new position as head of the entire company to access a computer and fire him and he flips out as you would expect yeah um and she's smoking while she works because mm-hmm. working lady it's <laughs> like you it's need a little bit you need that stimulation to you know get your thoughts clear and whatnot there i, I th- if you were a smoker i think there's a perfect 90s scene of a job that you would have liked there's a scene in Chasing Amy where Ben Affleck and Jason Jason Lee is that the right Lee yeah uh, they're one is drawing and the other one's a tracer uh, and they're both I've seen that scene at you've least. seen the scene but they're both smoking they're just like in this apartment drawing and smoking I'm like that's the fucking dream <laughs> that's the dream job oh, drawing man. and smoking drawing and smoking yeah <laughs> that's the dream yeah. you know I mean minus the smoking part that sounds great yeah <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, basically all the parties come together and the terrorists uh snatch all of our all of our executives including brad Dourif. um who kins is freaking the fuck out like he's, yeah he's very nervous here and i noticed this dialogue scene this is where the framing um where i started to question whether or not i was seeing what the film was supposed to be or not uh, because we're so tight on everyone it yeah. looks like we're in a phone booth and William Hootkins is already a phone booth. Like, like we I mean, have five other people in the room. Well, our action sequences are really, really close and fast. I mean, it's literally you. If you're epileptic, you might it might trigger it because it's so fast. And I, I get where you're coming from, but I think maybe like we're up close on everybody, so those sequences don't seem so strange. Could you imagine if you've got like? Everybody, like, full frame, like, you've got torsos in the shots, which very rarely there are in this film. And then you're going into these action sequences where it's, like, super up close and it's going by super fast. It might just be because the action sequences had to be edited like that. I mean, you are onto something. I mean, there is such a thing as training your viewer to anticipate, you know, a visual language for the rest of the film. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, that could be it, too. Um, But this dialogue sequence in particular is obnoxiously tight, where it's just, like, there are six people on on film right now and like i feel like i'm up in all right their in, businesses. yeah yeah I, i'm right in there with you're it. in a crowded <laughs> high school party and you're just like yeah right up yeah yeah it, it's it's very uncomfortable but um long story short uh brad Dourif kind of weasels his way into guiding everyone into vault 10 he's like he says oh like she just fired me and like i, I want to help you guys um i don't even know what you're up to but i want to help you mm-hmm. and uh for whatever reason they trust him <laughs> Um, I guess it's kind of explained a little later that, you know, they aren't particularly... The brightest? <laughs> yeah, they're not very bright, and they're not very good terrorists, and they don't even have real weapons with them anyway. They remind me of the three dipshits from Smoke and Aces. Yeah. 
um, that or like airheads or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get physical with me? <laughs> I love Steve Buscemi in that movie. That's just a good movie. It is a good movie. Uh, but anyway, we go down to Vault 10 and we... It's funny because we get the sequence where Yutani disarms Jack Dante and it, it's it's like a running gag of him like pulling all manner of pistols out from his trench coat and stuff. Um, and yet he he still manages to get away with a gun later. I think Hootkins does as well. Um, but yeah, we go down to Vault 10 and uh, they open it up and uh, he unleashes the war beast on yeah. them. And Andreas Wisniewski, despite being someone I was very happy to see in this film, uh, gets one of the most unceremonious deaths. Um, it is it is blink and you'll miss it. And it's like, he's gone? Yeah. He's gone? Well, he's... I forgot. I didn't realize how jacked he was because he was like, uh, they use like a torch cutting thing to get into this, uh, in this cell tin or whatever it is, and he's like moving it over. I'm like, dude, he's fucking jacked. Like, I, I never realized it. the the gray the gray sweatsuit didn't really tell you. Maybe they did that to make it look like you know, Bruce Willis had a chance. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Although the way that fight is structured is very entertaining because it is he completely wins by accident. Mm-hmm. Like, he fell on top of him. <laughs> I think this the the fight with Carl is one of my favorite one of my favorite scenes in that movie. I think the dialogue in that scene is one of my it, favorite yeah. scenes in that movie. Brother squeal, Brother broke his fucking neck. <laughs> He's talking about cutting bait and fishing and <laughs> like, i'm gonna cook you <laughs> it's like I, he's just channeling the fury of the that, gods <laughs> that's one of those scenes where like it feels legit like it feels like they're really fighting um yes. I, I i actually i wanted to point out i found another really good running scene guess who it is han solo harrison ford in return of the jedi when they're blowing up the uh uh that thing on indoor he's like bol- he's bolting out uh, out of that I'll really to look that up really good on-screen running okay well harrison ford can't punch worth shit but i guess he can run <laughs> he can run uh his his punches are amazing <laughs> i can't even I, I mean that's all indiana jones but that's because it's got the indiana jones is the best punch sound effects of any movie it is it like indisputable like, <laughs> yeah. and uh air force one has some of his ugliest punching um him and andrew devoff uh, the Wishmaster going at it is pretty hilarious. Well, that was supposed to be like a quiet fight. Like, so... I, <laughs> I, I don't remember them... Harrison Ford isn't quiet. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, not stealthy. He's not stealthy. <laughs> uh, I can't think of that fight, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, look it up. It's it's a good one. Um, but anyway, yeah, uh, Andreas Wisniewski uh, is understandably jacked. Um, like I said, he played the heavy in a James Bond movie. Like, to me, that was probably his biggest Tim- role timothy dalton yeah i'm gonna have yeah. to wa- i'm gonna have to watch the dalton uh 007s because i like timothy dalton i do too um and i think both of those movies are pretty good like okay. underrated um uh, i think i favor license to kill um wisniewski was in living daylights but um there's a couple of very good sequences in that one and you get joe don baker which is always fun oh, yeah. <laughs> but um yeah the war beast emerges from the shadows and uh what I gathered, and it's only a couple of frames, um, is the thing charges at the terrorists, um, and it like hits a fuel tank or something that Wisniewski brought with him, like probably for like a torch or something, like a welding torch. And by the way, the the lighting and the way they cut the vault door open is straight out of the opening of Aliens when mm-hmm. they find Ripley. Um, 
And it, it like bites the tank and it causes an explosion. And we get a dummy. We get a stunt dummy, which is hilarious. Uh, Raimi goes flying across the room. Mm-hmm. We get like like a inarticulate dummy flying across <laughs> the room. <It's, laughs> Kyle just did a perfect imitation of it. Um, and yeah, uh, he dies in the explosion. And we don't see any of it. We mm-hmm. just see like a flash and he's gone. And I was like, oh no, Carl's brother. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Raimi rejoins the group, and uh, it starts. <laughs> it starts kind of like the chase scenario, where it's like, okay, all 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 the shits hit the fan. We need to get out of here. They decide they want to start a fire because they want the fire doors to close and potentially impede the progress of the war beast. That was a dumb idea that comes to bite them in the ass later. Yeah, we set off the halon system. Uh, you can't go in there. Yeah, <laughs> definitely a halon system. Uh, we need we need a terminator to help us get through that. Um, yeah, so from here, we the next best thing is Hookins, I guess yeah. the elevator scene. Um, I don't, I, I'm not entirely sure because this is one of those scenes where it's just like you've got all these people in this elevator, and this is another one of those times where it's just like it's all too close. We're all way too close together. Um, does Hookins pull out the fucking Robocop gun? It is very, no. very close. No, it, it's a different gun. Okay. Um, the, the Robocop gun is an M93R is a Italian automatic like burst fire pistol yeah. uh, with a gigantic compensator put on it to to robocopize it. Yeah. Um, he has a Desert Eagle which is Israeli and is very large. Um, I think of, I think of I'm having trouble <laughs> at least <laughs> once a week now. Uh, it is the best. It is the best line. It's I, great. I, I every I if I could I would use it every single day but people around me would probably get really upset. I don't like, get. To I, use I know them. for a fact I've done it at the office at least once, and nobody got the joke, but it made me chuckle. It's mm. <laughs> great stuff. <laughs> I think the fax was down. <laughs> I was like at my desk, and I just did the head turn and the tented fingers and the whole deal. <laughs> <laughs> I think the fingers is what makes it fun. <laughs> the tented fingers are really what puts it together. Uh, Peter Weller, secret comedian. Um, Good stuff. But yeah, basically, um, we learn here that the terrorists. Um, they're like humanitarian terrorists, so all the stuff about a uh, chank being up to no good—that's why they're doing what they're doing. Is that I've heard of eco terrorists? Are there humanitarian terrorists? Is that a thing? Uh, Seems kind of counter counterintuitive. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't make sense. I mean, one is like for preservation of the planet, I guess, and one is for the preservation of human life. But you would think those go hand in hand, so they're probably the same thing. They're probably analogous, but. Um, basically what we learned here is that the the guns that they're carrying don't actually have live ammunition in them. Although, Raimi does shoot at the War Beast with his blank firing rifle, which is kind of silly. Yeah. Um, that doesn't really work, but okay. Especially because it's a robot. Speaking of airheads, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, what comes of this is that Hootkins is like, oh, so you mean you've been holding me up with squirt guns, essentially? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, and being as Hootkins is quite the large individual and uh, is wily and squirrely as fuck, uh, I think he gets hold of one of the guns that Yutani pulled off of uh, Dante. Mm. And uh, he uses that to hold everyone up. And he's like, okay, uh, everywhere we go, you guys are going to be one step ahead of me because I'm not a dumb shit. And uh, I know there's a war beast on my ass. Um, and, of course, that results in him getting off before everyone else. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not sure how it makes its way. Does it come up from beneath and get him? Yeah. Yes. And he kind of gets, like, uh, uh, this is deep rising, kind of, where I think 
like the bottom half of him. He's been halved. Uh, I think the bottom half of him gets eaten up by the death machine. And he has like a weird, I don't know, this was a very strange scene. Yeah, uh, it's a, the blocking of it is really strange. Um, it's surprisingly long. Like yeah. it's a couple minutes long of just like noise and the machine like tearing through the elevator. But yeah, it comes through the floor um, and it's just like swinging its metal bladed arm around um, and it stabs Yutani in the thigh. Like it grabs hold of him with its hand. Um, but then the head comes up and it starts like spinning around and it's behave yeah it's just gnashing its teeth like mad like it's like a bear trap that just keeps clanking open yeah, it's a it's a big bear trap that's what it that's what i'm thinking of yeah it's it's a big bear trap big and, bear uh, trap it, think uh think of like a, a chomp chain from mario <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah it stabs Yutani in the leg and somehow he gets free of it um and it like starts spinning its head around. It has some strange behavior where Raimi actually pauses and he's like, "I don't know what you're doing." Yeah. <laughs> like I got the sense it was almost like malfunctioning or something. Um, but everybody struggles with it. Yutani starts laying into it. This is where I first noticed the <laughs> like he literally does that and it's like oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, it bites Hootkins like on, like, on on the lat, like on the shoulder, and uh. It uh, just kind of like grabs hold of him, and somehow it, it like tears through the ceiling as well. I don't know how it did that. It has some gymnastics ability apparently. Um, but yeah, the awkwardness that Kyle's getting at here is the the conclusion of this very loud scene where um, they all pile out of the elevator, and it's just this long sustained reverse zoom shot of Hootkins staring into the camera, looking yeah. like like a child that's about to get slapped by his dad or something. Yeah. <laughs> And it goes on for like ten solid seconds, and then he gets pulled through the bottom of the elevator, and he and the death, the death machine fall down the shaft, and the elevator goes with him. Yeah. So it's this weird moment where we're asked to like sympathize with this guy who just revealed himself to be a total asshole. Yeah, I don't really care. It's. I mean, it's kind of chilling because he's a very good actor. Um, man, I, I really enjoyed him in this movie. I, I enjoy him in everything. Like I, I can't hear the word occult without thinking of him because of Indiana Jones. He's obsessed with the occult. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Porkins. Who could forget Porkins? Porkins. I know him best from Batman. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. But yeah, yeah uh, that that's like yeah, that first, makes sense. <laughs> that, that's like our uh, our first on-screen death in the movie, and it's it's not a banger. Um, I, like I said, I could have done with more gore, but you know, I was also kind of sad to see who can leave the film so early uh and then moving forward the uh the rest the next 40 minutes of the movie are kind of like the cops in um men in black a little soggy in the midsection uh this is just uh it's kind of like walking around and not really much happens uh there's kind of some talking which is usually a big boner killer in a movie like this and like Unless you guys are hatching a plan, I don't need dialogue. Um, they don't. Are they even hatching a plan at this point? Not really. But when they do hatch a plan, it's a, uh, it's satisfying. Like I, I liked what they came up with because it, it's kind of ch- shocking. Where it's like, whoa, okay, that's quite an extreme to take things in. But yeah, they kind of fart around. Um, they take shelter in in a like a secured room that. They use Hootkin's uh, ID card to gain access to. Even Kale didn't have access to it. Yeah. And this is where they discover the uh, the Hard Man Lab, where they were building the cybernetic soldiers that we cybernetic saw. Cybernetic o- o- organisms. Yes, uh, uh, from the opening of the film. 
We get an easy money. Like, there's one easy money shot, and then there's another really big easy money shot. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe I should specify. Oh, we're doing John Connor hacking with uh, cards money shot, not, you know... Pornhub money shot, different money yeah. shot. Thank you for clarifying, Kyle. Not everybody might get that right. <laughs> and if you didn't know that there's another kind of money shot, there you go. <laughs> Happy Googling. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we go into the lab and uh, we get a couple of scenes here where uh, Dante is taunting them through all the video monitors about and he reveals that he knows where they are because we saw that Kale has a like locator device embedded in her wrist that Rachel Wise asked her earlier if it itched. So we get some we get a visual cue about that. Um I was waiting for you to call on me. I had my hand up. Uh <laughs> I just thought of something that would make this better, uh Monday morning quarterback. Um if he was doing like a uh you know those where you have like the block of horror movies and you have the host uh kind of thing. I think that would have been fun if he was doing that. Like if he was playing it like he was like hosting a horror movie because it's you know kind of supposed to be a horror movie i mean given that he had he he had some joker mannerisms earlier and he had props like he we didn't mention the the googly yeah. eye glasses so he had the pencil he had the googly eye glasses imagine him with like a vampire mantle and some fake fangs going blah yeah. <laughs> like, welcome to death machine yeah blah. that would have been a lot of fun <laughs> yeah, uh that, funny would have been fun funny enough malcolm mcdowell does that in 31 with richard brake Connections. Connections. Revolutions. Revolutions. <laughs> Over the shoulders. Acidic mustard shit. <laughs> it took me ten viewings to figure out what the fuck he was talking about. <laughs> I still don't know. <laughs> he's talking about... He's talking about spunk. <laughs> ah, gotcha. I should have exactly. assumed as much. Because he's on a coke rant. I'm like, what the fuck is he even talking about? I'm like, oh, he's talking about... Yeah. <laughs> he's talking about spunk. <laughs> it's so weird. I'm glad I didn't rewatch that scene ten times over just to figure that out. <laughs> oh no, I'm talking about the movie. I've seen the oh, movie yeah. ten times. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, but yeah, uh, while we're in this lab, uh, Kale does some fast science, and she determines that hey, um, this hard man gear, even though we've seen plenty of evidence to suggest it doesn't end up well for the person wearing it, um, maybe we can use this to fight the war beast. Um, so during one of these taunt sessions that uh, Brad Dourif has with them over the TV monitor, um, he reveals how the thing hunts. So he says it senses fear, and so the more scared you are of it, the faster it can find you and kill you. Um, and he, like, screams at them. So finally we get to see Brad Dourif scream, uh, unfortunately, through a screen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, how are you going to stay alive? And... Uh, they determined that the best idea at this point is to suit Raimi up. So they put him in the hard man gear, knowing full like knowing full well that this could result in him his brain borking itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get a Terminator reference in the form of an I'll be back. Like a but not as good as that. Because no. <laughs> he doesn't try as hard as apparently I did. Um, and yeah, he, he volunteers for this. Utani apparently wanted to, but Raimi's the boss, so he volunteers, he puts on the hard man gear, and they turn him into a super soldier with very little personality. Uh, we completely glossed over Utani's uh, Derek Zoolander underwear pool. Uh, <laughs> Utani gets, uh, he gets cut in the leg and he ends up ripping his underwear out of his pants like Derek Zoolander does. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, like Hansel does. <laughs> and uses that, uses that as a tourniquet. <laughs> 
I mean, he puts himself into a trance and everything to it's do it. It's pretty awesome. I wasn't expecting it. And I like the, I like uh, uh, Raimi. His, he's just like, like it, it, he's just kind of watching from his, he's like at crotch level watching him do it. Do it. Yeah, we'd cut back and forth between him and he's just like in awe watching yeah, it. Like, All right. He, and he's just, he's not even amazed by it. He's just like, okay, that works. <laughs> just a well, I mean, based on the stuff that Yutani does throughout this movie, it seems like feats of awesomeness like that come pretty common mm-hmm. to him. Um, but yeah, that's how they like close the wound on his leg. Although he does a good job of like selling the leg throughout the entirety of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, good good on him for, you know, attempting continuity in this movie. Um, but yeah, now Raimi is suited up and he's got like a rocket launcher and guns and he's got stomping around. He's trying to do like some Robocop shit, but like I said, the costuming I think was a little bit of a failure. Mm. It just doesn't look as like rigid or as like heavy as it as it needs to be. It looks like it's like flopping around on him. It looks like it's made of marshmallow, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't look like it doesn't look like he's in a robot suit or like a suit mm-hmm. of armor. It just looks like he's wearing football pads. Yeah, it looks like football pads. Yeah, it's a little unfortunate because it's like the Legion of Doom. Yeah, he he's trying. <laughs> Lod, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the best intros ever. Mm. Gets you pumped. Nah, man. Glass breaking. Yeah, I mean, that's the best. But. <laughs> oh, do you remember how excited you used to get when you'd hear that? Dun, dun. Of course. Oh, fuck! <laughs> I mean, on some of those WrestleMania appearances, they literally smashed glass. Like, and they had a sheet of glass at the oh. entry ramp, and he'd walk through the, the glass falling. Oh, that's badass. Did you hear that's his amazing. story about him shitting his pants? <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you that, too. Uh, please do. I, I know about many other wrestlers shitting their pants, but I didn't know about him. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Anyway, uh, Raimi is kind of like on point here, and uh, he's kind of like leading them through the facility, and my understanding of what their goals here are kind of hazy, because we go all over the place. Like, at one point, we're trying to head to the basement, because that's where the mainframe is, and that's the objective of the terrorist, is to, I think, destroy the mainframe or, or rip all the data from it. Um, but we end up on the roof, and then we go down. So we go, we go up to go down, much like uh, the opposite of Deep Blue Sea. We go down to go up. It, yeah, this really threw me off because I was watching it. And I'm like, how, like they were like on the ground level. How the how, why, where are they at? And I didn't even piece it together. I'm like, oh, they're, they're at the top of this building. Yeah. Um, at some point, Yutani gets shot in the shoulder, um, but he's he's tough. He lives through it, and. Uh, we get this chase sequence where the war beast is chasing them, uh, and it gets its head like stuck in a vent, and we get this kind of neat shot of like a miniature war beast, like the whole body with its head in a little hole, so it looks like a dog that got its head stuck between a fence or something. <laughs> um, and uh, Raimi shoots a fucking rocket at it, yeah. And we get a uh, a war beast dummy, uh, much like Raimi earlier in the film, going flying, <laughs> and it's hilarious. I forgot about Hooken's archer moment in the elevator where he's gonna shoot the gun. She's like, "No, don't!" Boom, boom, boom! And he shoots him. He gets shot in the arm because it ricochets. Yeah, uh, see, stuff like that was little details like that are kind of fun. Yeah, like in the choreography. Oh, I laughed. The action. Yeah, I, I it, it was fun because, like, you know, it is like made of fucking metal and <laughs> like that's not necessarily an armor piercing gun you got there uh yeah he of all the places that bullet could have ended up of course it hits him in the arm yeah <laughs> um but yeah the war beast of course doesn't die from that no we do get the the rocket effect is pretty fucking cool um, it's a juicy explosion this movie does have some pretty sweet explosions mm-hmm. that was certainly one of them um 
but now we're like headed for the roof and uh we finally get to see our our heroes do the aliens thing where basically there's a uh there's a door that we're trying to open up to get out to the roof and there's a like a hoist like something you'd use for like window washing mm-hmm. that goes up the entire length of the building so they're trying to activate that so they can go from the roof all the way down to the ground floor um so Raimi is uh the way his this actor is interpreting this is like he he shouts everything it's like he's got headphones on <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's really yes. funny i caught yeah. that too are we going down now like jesus dude we're right next to you <laughs> Yeah, he. You're absolutely right. It does sound like someone. It's not that. It's maybe funny. it's a maybe it's a failing on the actor's part. I think he's trying to do like a stereotypical like soldier, like hardened marine kind of like yeah, delivery. But it does right. sound like a guy yelling over his music. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, did you notice the alien, the full blown Alien Three nod? Uh, at the very end. Yeah, where the where she like has got her back up against the wall yes, and it comes. Yes. Yeah, wow. I have it in my notes. I just noticed that. I wasn't sure if you were there yet. No, um, they. I think they uh, narrowly avoid completely ripping it off because I don't think we show the war beast's face up it's, against hers. It's close. It's it's, it's so close it's, to. It's too close. It, it it's close to the point that my brain was putting that image there. Yes. Even though it even though it technically wasn't, I was seeing it because it was so close but um instead of alien 3 though we do get an aliens-esque moment here where the, the war beast like crashes through the door and knocks Raimi on his ass uh so yutani and kale have to fight the thing and this is where the choreography kind of falls flat on its face because instead of like people scrambling around the room and like you know having some sort of movement and like action and coordination they literally just like spread their legs hold out the rifles and unload on this thing mm-hmm. and it just stands there and eats eats all of it for like 30 seconds straight and it's visually impressive because it's like live pyrotechnics going off on a live prop and you know we keep cutting back and forth to people going and doing the rambo thing but the, it's not moving yeah and neither are they and it just goes on and on and on <laughs> and this is where uh, right before uh, they unload yutani turns his head to Kale and says, not Shoryuken, he says, Shoryuken! <laughs> it's like, oh no, God! <laughs> Why? After they unload on the on the war beast, uh, there's another beat in the choreography where they just keep shooting this thing, and it was starting to drive me nuts, where I was like, you gotta move. Like, yeah. you, gotta do, you gotta do something to, to liven it up, or like make it feel like you put some thought into it, and uh, uh, Raimi like, knocks out the platform, he like knocks out knocks out one of the struts underneath the war beast and it falls down and it needs to be said this puppet every time it falls down it is kind of hilarious uh, it very reminiscent of whenever ed 209 like when he fell down the stairs and stuff there's a lot of ed 209 similarities yeah um and we get a fist fight between Raimi and the war beast which is actually not as embarrassing as you would expect <laughs> like it doesn't look half bad um and the point is he's he's wearing this this uh, hard man gear and because his brain is like robot man right now he doesn't exhibit any fear pheromones so it can't it's like predator oh that's one that we didn't reference is it's like predator because we get pov shots and he appears as just like a blue oh my goodness yeah there's yeah 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 so it's like arnie wearing the mud Uh, so it can't see him somebody uh on some website i saw it on reddit it's like uh 
this is the 30 year anniversary of uh, Predator 2. It's a lot better than you remember. I'm like, well, truer, truer words have never been heard. <laughs> <laughs> someday, Kyle. Someday we, we will spotlight the movie that we started the whole fucking podcast with. Yeah. <laughs> because, um, folks at home, if you've never checked it out, the very first oh. episode we ever posted was uh, titled The Predator Masterclass. Yeah. Covered the entire Predator franchise, including Predator 2. But We didn't Kyle, give it its. Kyle, yeah, Kyle feels we didn't give it its due. We didn't. <laughs> some we, we owe it. Yeah. Yeah. Masterclass Revisited is something I would very much like to do someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's material there. There's ample material there. But, um, yeah, uh, the war beast can't see Raimi, so he beats the shit out of it, and it falls down. And, again, every time this thing falls down, I'm, I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> I can't help myself. But um, Then we get a tremendously awkward death that I don't know how they came up with this but it is so bizarre it's very strange i don't Not even yet. know what happened like it, i don't even know what happens it this is where some gore would have come in handy but even with the gore this is just nonsense yeah. um so Raimi and kale take advantage of the war beast being down for the count for a second now um and they head out this this little passageway out onto the roof where it's raining uh, because why not it's a horror movie you may as well have some atmosphere um, and Yutani, before he follows them, he decides to shoot at the thing more. That didn't really work the first time mm-hmm. with two people shooting at it. I don't know why you would think it would work now, but okay. Um, and then he turns around, and he hits his forehead on the on the window, and he falls on his back. So this guy who's been shown to be like the ultimate badass, uh, you know, can pull his underwear out from from his pants. Um, Gets a Boba Fett death. (laughs) Yes, he gets a Boba Fett death. (laughs) And he falls on his back, and the war beast, uh, like, hangs over him, and we get a POV shot, and he has, like, this kind of, like, dopey expression on his face. Like, it's almost like he expected this to happen or something. I knew this is how it was going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. (laughs) Like, my entire life, I knew this would be the end. (laughs) Just like the palm reader said it would. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's akin to, like, Ken Watanabe in the last summer. <laughs> perfect. They're all perfect. <laughs> yeah, um, he gets tore up by the war beast, and I was I was so baffled by how that happened. <laughs> what? You know, I I was actually thinking of the last samurai the other day, it, and people give it some shit because like, oh, Tom Cruise in the last samurai. I'm, that's a fucking stupid movie. I'm like, guys. You forget about all the Japanese actors doing an amazing job in that film. I'm like, you can be upset with it because Tom Cruise, yeah. It's still a good movie. I mean, it it is Baby's First Samurai. Yeah. Like, it is that because it, it does, like, borrow so many tropes of the genre. And it does, like, kind of spoon feed to you, like, old, like yeah. antiquated Japanese culture and stuff. So it does kind of talk down to you a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's a pretty handsome movie with some pretty spectacular battle sequences. And like you said, the Japanese cast is really putting in work. And Tom Cruise isn't half bad either. That scene in the rain is really good. Him fighting. I can't think of the Japanese actor's name. He was in Life. I can't. Oh, um, He's in everything. Escapes, yeah, it escapes me at the moment. But uh, he is he's an ace, man. Yeah. In, ter- in terms of like... Uh, Oh, Hiroyuki Sanada. There you go. Uh, he's he is awesome. He's part of the uh, Sunny Chiba Stunt Academy, as far as I'm <laughs> kidding. Oh, I, yeah. I was not aware of that. But uh, if you like, if you ever get a chance, and I seriously doubt you would be in the mood for it anytime soon, but um, seeing him as a young man, holy fucking shit, he could cut loose. Really? 
he was one of those few like Japanese martial arts talents on film that would occasionally work with like Hong Kong film crews because mm-hmm. he could keep up like really fucking well. Um, yeah, uh, he was a whirlwind. <laughs> and even as a even as a middle aged guy, that guy's got moves. I was gonna say he does a really good job in that little the rain the rain fight with him and Tom Cruise. Oh yeah, no, he was one of the cooler parts of that cast. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even have much dialogue. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, back Sorry. to this movie. <laughs> I mean, I do like the last samurai for for what it's worth. Yeah, and, you know, I f- can't remember the guy uh, the guy with no eyebrows when he gets the sword thrown through his torso. Oh, <laughs> that's a home run moment. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, yeah, it's like, yeah, the guy with no eyebrows getting a sword through his chest. Yes, more of this. <laughs> and it's out of here. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Kale and uh, Raimi. By the way, Raimi has been having uh, some like fits and spasms and stuff. I don't know what's happening to me. <laughs> <laughs> that is his delivery, folks. Like Kyle is doing it quite accurately. Um, at some point, he does. Um, I noticed maybe it was only noticeable with the subtitles i don't know if you caught this but when he has his first flip out they're in a corridor and this is earlier in the film um he starts flipping out and screaming and he says the phrase would you like some donuts i did not catch that <laughs> he literally says would you like some donuts and then he falls down i didn't realize how frustrating it being so up close like just where like everybody's just shoulders and up it's really frustrating now i'm thinking back to the movie i'm like god that's annoying it bothered me because there's a couple of scenes where people are like stepping out of frame or standing up into the frame and they're cut off mm-hmm. and i want i want to say it's a problem with the transfer of the film i, think I, so. I do not i cannot fathom this like as being the it the intended presentation of the film something was wrong yeah. because there it was pretty consistent like the framing always felt a little bit off um, so I don't I don't want to fault the film for that. Although if I do discover that that's how Stephen Norrington wanted it, dude, like you did a good job with Blade. <laughs> I'll give you that, but not that time. But um, we get on this hoist and uh, we we uh, like blow the brakes on it. And uh, actually, the the miniature work on the thing falling from the roof to the the ground level is pretty cool. Like, it looks sharp. Like it, it's lit well and it looks like it has weight and mass to it. Um, so we escape the, the war beast for now, and we get down to the ground level, and we get the worst dialogue in the movie, where this cop, who Raimi had called oh, yeah. for help, <laughs> uh, shows up, and he shoots Kale in the leg, and every because the rain is pouring down here, I think they had to ADR all the dialogue in this scene, because everyone is, like, really obviously dubbed. Um, <laughs> it's, just like, it's just a series of expletives passed back and forth yeah. between three people. And at some point, I think after Kale gets shot in the leg, uh, Raimi shouts at the cop, well, "Like it's something really bad! Like you stupid fucking piece of shit! Yeah, <laughs> you stupid son of a bitch! Um, you did, yeah, yeah, you stupid son of a bitch! Yeah." And it's so blatantly dubbed that it's yeah. it's hilarious. But um, we get an aliens reference, um, in, mm-hmm. in the form of some bits of metal falling to the ground beside the cop's feet and he like looks to either side of him and it's very akin to the the acid pool at bishop's feet before the alien queen tears him in half mm. uh, so like it, it's that scene is so good <laughs> we're, that's we're been up. on my mind recently too it's just i don't have two hours and 45 minutes dude kyle i sat down to try to watch quote the good parts of aliens mm-hmm. 
couldn't do it. Had to watch the whole thing. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> like, like I specifically sat down because I wanted to watch the initial attack sequence because I had that piece of music on my mind. Mm-hmm. No, the whole movie. Watch the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, watch the whole thing. Didn't regret it at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, long story short, the the war beast falls on top of the cop, so it jumps from the fucking roof. Yeah, like hundred stories up. Yeah, literally a hundred stories up. Yeah, and it renders him into goo. Uh, you don't see any of it, but it does fall on him, and you know he's dead. This would have <laughs> been a really good goo shot if you just you just see him drop and, then, and it just blows up. Yeah, like a Final Destination two when the the pane of glass falls on that stupid fucking kid. <laughs> I think I think that was the bigot from uh ice uh from uh, X two X Men two. I think it was, like, Iceman's younger brother who, like, outs him as a mutant. Oh, that piece of shit? Uh, yeah, I think that was him. Man. I could be wrong, but he has the same quality. That's a tr- it's kind of a trope. It's usually, like, like uh, teenage boys right before they're teenagers just being, like, tattletale pieces of shit. Uh, yeah. I don't... Well, like you said, that, that one sibling that the parents don't care about, and he has way too much porn and a lot yeah. of angst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not a good combo. <laughs> and a mutant brother that can make ice. <laughs> um, but this begins like the... I guess this is the... It's like a combination of the end of Aliens and uh, the end of the first Terminator. Because it's yeah. just an extended chase sequence where the wounded war beast is chasing them back into the building and it's them going through a series of like security checks where they have to swipe key cards and it kind of like pursuing them kind of slowly like kind of like dragging its feet along behind behind them kind of like the terminator in the first film yeah uh yeah we definitely get a i think is i think this might actually be the most blatant reference is the t2 the key cards at the same time yes yeah (laughs) that's that's the winner yeah that this is the easy money that kyle's talking about um but yeah, uh, basically it follows them through a series of blast doors, and uh, it's kind of neat that um, the the wireframe like computer image like tour that we got of the whole building when the terrorists were first entering, like when they're running down their plan, um, it does ac- it does accurately like reflect the like the the props and like the sets that we go through in this final act. Uh, so there's this like bulkhead that they have to get through, and it's this like folding door that slowly goes down. And uh, this is where we get some bad shots of the war beast, like walking behind them, and it's just kind of like, like vibrating. Jittery, more. yeah. Yeah, it looks kind of janky. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm sure they sped up the footage to you know make it look like it's actually moving faster than like a, like a a, a trend master's like motorized action figure. <laughs> could they not do any stop motion? Like I was I was looking at this thing. I'm like, could you just not have done any stop motion for it? Stop motion is time consuming and expensive. I can see why they wouldn't do it. Um, they used, they like I said, they had miniatures and they had like individualized limbs and stuff that they could move as like puppets. But um, I don't think I saw any stop motion. There was I not. I, I, I saw some miniature work, um, maybe some rod puppetry, um, definitely some like hydraulic, like mechanized arms and stuff. But no, no stop motion. I certainly would have welcomed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you really got to have the right people working on that and you need to give them time because uh, it, it's not something you can rush. No. Um, so it would have been welcome, but we didn't get it. And that's kind of the story of this whole conversation is you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda. 
Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, basically, um, this final chase sequence, it's kind of repetitive, because Kale keeps throwing explosives at the war beast, and this is where its intelligence uh, gets called into question. Yeah. Because this thing is not very bright. Uh, it's single-minded, but, you know, as compared to, like, a Terminator or something, Terminator is a learning computer. Yeah. Like, it generally learns from its mistakes, like, you know, Arnold finding the keys ab- above as opposed to, like, you know, ripping ripping out the ignition and trying to hotwire the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this thing gets bombs thrown at it multiple times and it doesn't really seem to react to it properly. It just eats it. <laughs> um, but yeah, finally we get to the, the mainframe that has been the objective for the terrorists the entire movie. And uh, both Kale and Raimi are in there. And this is where we get the Alien 3 shot that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, where Raimi is knocked unconscious by the last explosion and uh, Kale is like posted up against the wall and the shot that Kyle's talking about from Alien 3 is of course the iconic uh, Ripley like in the it's like the clinic of the prison it's the most iconic shot from the Alien franchise it, yeah. it is the Alien franchise shot if, if you google Alien 3 it'll probably be one of the first pictures you find yeah. it's just the alien's head right beside Ripley and she's like in tears like trying to She's, like, cowering in fear of the thing. Mm-hmm. And it's very reminiscent of that. But the war beast has stopped moving. And why is that, Kyle? I don't know. <laughs> well, the the dead man switch that uh, Brad Dourif showed us. Oh, yes, earlier, that's right. Uh, he's put his thumb on it. Yeah, he kind of just he... comes in. It's like, you were such a disappointment to me. Which is, you're about to die if you hear somebody who's obsessed with you say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you no. were about to be a lamp. <laughs> Yeah, what's the what the stalker serial killer uh, mo? It's like they they want to bridge the gap between you and them, and then when when the when that gap is bridged, you are gone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Until the, until they move on to the next. Um, but yeah, we get a strange sequence here where we did see earlier in the film that she is kind of a skilled pickpocket because she did steal Richard mm-hmm. Brake's ID badge earlier. Um, and somehow she uh, finagles uh, the dead man switch from him. And they're in the room together with the war beast, which has stopped moving. And uh, she and Raimi very casually just kind of step out of the room and seal the door behind them. You're making a face, Kyle. Well, she's trying to do the Kim Basinger to the Joker thing, where she's just like, oh, you're just so great. And it's like, uh, it's a trap. <laughs> she's yeah, she's yeah. lying. Well, I mean, she... It's kind of goofy, like, the dialogue that she uses when she steps in to embrace him is, like, she makes reference to motherboards, and, uh, I forget, what's the word he uses, uh, in, in reference to sex? It's, like, integrate, or, like, or like something. Know. It It's, it's like, computer terminology, mm. as opposed to, like, standard, like, sexual terminology and stuff. But she, like, borrows his lingo, and it, it is very much like the Joker in yeah. Basinger at the end of that movie. Um, and... Also, kind of similar to that, uh, I think Raimi, she, like, ducks or turns around, and Raimi socks him. So it's it's straight out of Batman 89. Mm-hmm. Um, and being as William Hootkins is in this movie, I'm pretty sure Stephen Norrington has seen Batman 89. <laughs> I put my life on I put my life on it, yeah. I think he's seen <laughs> Batman 89. Uh, unfortunately, there's no, uh, have you ever danced with the devil? Like, that would have been good. No quip, nothing like that. Yeah. yeah, there's not a whole lot of quips in this movie, and they usually fall flat on their face when they try. I, I, I did like when Hootkins is coming on to Kale, and she socks him in the face. <laughs> yeah. Like, it did look like maybe one of those takes she 
she got all of it. <laughs> you are smelly fat, dude. Get away from me. <laughs> he really is like a big lumberjack, man. Yeah, he looks like he smells bad. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Good actor. Smells bad. Yeah, smells bad. <laughs> I'm sure that's what casting directors were telling people. <laughs> Good actor. <laughs> smells awful. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, he is knocked down by Raimi, and uh, they take the dead man switch from him. They seal the door. Uh, it's it's a saw ending. <laughs> yeah, it's a straight up saw ending. If you, I bet, like if you took the the saw music because there is saw music. It's the end of like literally every single one of those movies. If you put that over the end of this movie, it would be right on. It would be nice to have music over the end of the movie. There yeah, is none. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really get much of the music, but like I said, the audio was something I really wasn't privy to when I was watching this movie for the, the most part. They literally close it, and then it's just like. That's it. Yeah, it's kind of awkward because she lets go of the switch and we see like a single frame of like blades twitching, but there's no like tearing sounds. There's no like screaming, but we can assume that Brandorf is dead. Give us like one good shrieking scream and then go into your your '90s dance music. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see Blade? That music. <laughs> Confusion. <laughs> Confusion. The system is down. The system is down. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what plays over the credits. But, um, yeah, I mean, you have Brad Dourif. Tell him to scream. He can scream, I'm sure. For fuck's sake, the man can scream. <laughs> give, him, give him a good scream. But, yeah, that's how our, our supervillain dies, is completely off screen. Yeah. Um, may- maybe there was you know, the hope for a sequel or something, maybe. I suppose. But, but no, this movie doesn't really deserve it. Um, but, yeah, that's how the movie ends, with uh, some banging techno. Yeah. <laughs> Which, like I said, actually serves as kind of like a perfect play into Blade, where it's like we, we end with techno, we pick it up four years later and with Blade. more techno. Yeah. <laughs> with Devin Sawa and techno. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was Death Machine, uh, directed by Stephen Norrington from 1994. Like, on the whole, how did you feel about this one, Kyle? Uh, more engaging than the Big Man, but uh, it's not not very good. It, it definitely had potential. I think I think it could have been more fun. I think stop motion would have made it more fun. Some more honestly, stop motion gore, a little bit more Brad Dourif, and I think this would have been deep, uh, deep rising level uh, fun. Yeah, I, I think on the whole, um, more gore is what I would ask for the most, mm-hmm. just because of the design of the thing and what it's supposed to do. It seemed appropriate that you know when it tears into people, it needs to be really savage and violent, at yeah. least once. At yeah. least once. It never is in the theatrical cut. Um, cutting the runtime, uh, if this was a 90-minute film, yeah. <clears throat> um, not necessarily the runtime, but just the, the flow like of the overarching edit of the film needed to be tightened where the mm-hmm. presence of the death machine needed to be more immediate like we, re- we needed to feel like it was on their ass all the time because there's huge chunks of the movie where it just kind of dips out mm-hmm. um so finding a way to make it feel like it's it's present more often or giving better explanations as to why it's not would have would have tightened things, given it some actual tension, because this is mostly a tensionless film, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, maybe a higher, bo- actually, a higher body count would have been really awesome. Like yeah. what you ne- what you need in this kind of movie, Kyle, 
is when we get that description of it being a morale destroyer, what you do is you have Richard Brake die off screen. We don't need to see that. Mm-hmm. But what you do is uh, you have some at some point in the movie when all, when all of our, our people are holed up in hiding and Brad Dourif is telling them about what the thing does over the TV screens, what you do is you cut to a security team like fucking around in the building and then the death, the death machine locks onto them mm-hmm. and we keep cutting Rips back and pieces. forth to him talking about what it does and then cut to it doing what it does. Are you talking like and, him talking and then like and then it's going to do this like just going yeah, back and forth between yeah, the two just scenes? cross cut between his explanations of what it does and why you need to be afraid of it and then show it like running down a hallway at just a random security team investigating something in the building maybe because of the terrorists like maybe when they start that fire like a security team's alerted and they respond without knowing what the problem is and then it rips into them and we just keep cutting back and forth between really grisly images and people screaming and, and Brad Dourif yeah. being excited about it and being like, you see this shit? Yeah. And like maybe Kale wants to look away or something and it's like, you know, you, you need to do that. You need, you, need to give, you need to give the characters and the audience a reason to be afraid of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this is a fun thought experiment, you know, just like a, like you said, Monday morning quarterback kind of movie where yeah. it's, I don't hate it for what it is, but I, I wish it was more. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 I don't, I don't regret watching it though. Um, I didn't expect much, and I didn't get much, so that's that's fine, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that being said, uh, if you want to catch some of our other catching up on cinema content, um, you can find all of that on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, there's a hundred plus episodes of podcast there for you to check out uh, many of which feature our good buddy Brad from the Cinema Speak podcast uh, make sure to check out his show as well and uh, we also have a couple of social media accounts in the form of an Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema as well as a Twitter at Catching Cinema uh, so feel free to hit me up at either of those accounts if you have suggestions about future episodes and whatnot. Um, but yeah in the meantime please like share subscribe and all that shit mm-hmm. um, So yeah, uh, thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.